0: This lesson, um, this lesson in the, the Bible classes, everything we've been having lately, things that I need very much myself. Things about the love of God and, and knowing it and being able to uh, replicate that in our lives. Uh, something that I've needed very much. As we begin the lesson, and if, if I had to title it, it would perhaps be Salvation and Transformation. I kind of tell on myself in, in recent years and watching television, and probably too much of it, television shows like America's Got Talent and American Idol and similar shows. You've got these people that are, that are going on, these shows offer million-dollar prizes, and they com- repeatedly interview the contestants, and frequently they make comments like, boy, if I could just win this, this would change my life. This, this would enable me to do everything that I want to in life. You know, I could give my family everything that I want to. You know, this is the answer. I've got to have that million dollars. But I don't believe that's the answer. But I sometimes think and wonder if we often approach our religion, our Christianity, in the same way. Let me share some, some examples from the scriptures about what I'm talking about. And I'll, I'll ask and, and call you to kind of join with me. Reflect upon Grady's lesson last week. The difference between soul saving and salesmanship. Or, again, think about our adult class this morning, or this, this afternoon. <laughs> um, about the love of God. And what that requires is, requires of us. So, so starting out first, just I think most of you are probably familiar with Hebrews eleven. Hebrews eleven, we can turn there and we can see this extensive list of all these great men of faith and what they were able to accomplish because they believed in God. And I was thinking about that in recently and, and thought about yeah, but you know what? What does the Hebrew writer write about back? In He's talking about the children of Israel and after they've been delivered from bondage, they're not allowed to enter the Lord's rest. And why? Because it says of their unbelief, their lack of faith, if you will. So you've got the people in chapter 11 that did all these great things because of their faith and you've got people in chapter 3 and 4, that failed to enter the Lord's rest because they failed to believe. But was their belief the only problem, or was the problem much deeper than that? What was the difference between those in chapter 3 and 4 and the ones in chapter 11? All right, well, think about the children of Israel. They come out of Egypt. Moses is leading them into the wilderness. And what do they do? They've been delivered from bondage. What do they do? They complain. We've been delivered from bondage, but oh, we don't have enough food. We don't have enough water. You brought us out here to die in the wilderness. It would have been better for us back in Egypt. That was their attitude. So the the difference, at least as I see it, they were only concerned with themselves and their circumstances. Whereas those in Hebrews 11 were able to obey God's commands and do great things and answer God's call for them despite their circumstances. Even if it did mean their physical death. There was something different. that Their knowledge of God gave them the faith to do that. So again, as as we study today, let's think about, as Jason read Psalm 116 for us, us think about what the psalmist says in this psalm. Look at some New Testament passages that may help us understand this psalm better and perhaps the New Testament uh, passages help us understand how it may relate to us uh, from things we see in the New Testament and also take a look at in the New Testament where there's a verse from Psalm 116 that's quoted in the New Testament. First of all, in Psalm 116, in the first 11 verses, the psalmist is, is dealing with the things that God has done for him, if you will. In the first two verses, he says, I love the Lord because he has heard my voice and my supplications. Because he has inclined his ear to me, therefore, I will call upon him as long as I live. He's calling upon the Lord because the Lord hears. The Lord is there for him. In verses three and four, he talks about his condition when he called out to the Lord. He says, the pains of death surrounded me and the pains of Sheol laid hold of me. I found trouble and sorrow. Then I called upon the name of the Lord O oh Lord, I implore you, deliver my soul. He's calling out to God for deliverance. He's in despair. That's his condition. But verses six, uh, five and six, again, he states what God has done for him. Gracious is the Lord and righteous. Yes, our God is merciful. The Lord preserves the simple. I was brought low and he saved me. So again, showing God's love, his mercy, his care in preserving the psalmist. And then in in verse 7, the psalmist is even reminding himself of what the Lord has done. And he says, return to your rest, O my soul, for the Lord has dealt bountifully with you. Then in verse 8, he's acknowledging to God uh, what he's done. He says, Again, for you have delivered my soul from death, my ears from tears, and my feet from falling. And then verse 9 is a declaration of what God has enabled him to do. He says, I will walk before the Lord in the land of the living. He can do that now because of what God has done. Then he says, <clears throat> again in verse 10, he says, I believed, and therefore I spoke. I am greatly afflicted. Again, reflecting upon his condition when he's calling out to God. In verse 11, he says, I said in my haste, all men are liars. Now, to me, maybe he's making this statement because of what others are doing to him. I mean, think about David's life. Think about the things he went through and the times when people actually turned on him. The things he had to endure, I can see him in his haste making that statement. But think about it, though. This is a statement that, that gives us this great contrast with human beings and with God. Because, yes, we may get to the point where we think all men are liars. We may feel that way in the world that we live in. And I can see how David felt that way. But compared to God, God's faithful. God is there listening to him, calling out in despair to deliver his soul. God is faithful. Then he shifts gears in the remainder of of the psalm. Beginning in verse 12, this is more the psalmist's response to God, if you will. He asks in verse 12, What shall I render to the Lord for all his benefits? towards me. Now again, we can see that in David's life. I mean, the psalms that we have is an outpouring of his relationship with God and what God has done for him when he times when he's cried out to God and God has answered. But he's asking and think about it more in relation to us. Isn't that a question we should all ask? What shall I render to the Lord for all his benefits towards me? So then, the things he's already stated is that God has saved him from death, from despair. He's preserved his soul. In verse 16, skipping ahead a few verses, but he says, O Lord, truly I am your servant. I'm your servant, the son of your maidservant. Think about in the New Testament, the epistles that start out with the writer... Stating that they are a servant or a bond servant of God. That's part of that. What you know? The answer to that question in twelve. What shall I render to the Lord? Everything. I'm his bond servant. I owe it to him um, for what he's done for me. Um, I'm willing to give him everything. Uh, the end of verse sixteen. For you have loosed my bonds. In, in the beginning of, of verse 13, he says, I will take up the cup of salvation. And I ask you to think about this. When Jesus is praying in the garden in Luke 22 and verse 42, prior to his crucifixion, he says, Father, if it is your will, take this cup away from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Frequently here in the New Testament, this cup, particularly with Jesus, the cup he had to partake was death, his crucifixion, in order to bring salvation. That was the cup of salvation that he had to partake of. Jesus, in dealing with the disciples in Matthew 20, beginning in verse 20, it says, Then the mother of Zebedee's sons came to him with her sons, kneeling down and asking something from him. And he said to her, What do you wish? She said to him, Grant that these two sons of mine may sit, one on your right hand and the other on the left, in your kingdom. But Jesus answered and said, You do not know what you ask. Are you able to drink the cup that I am about to drink? and be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with. And they said to him, We are able. So he said to them, You will indeed drink my cup, and be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with. But to sit on my right hand and on my left hand is not mine to give, but it is for those for whom it is prepared by my Father. And when they heard it, they were greatly displeased with the two brothers, but Jesus called them to himself and said you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them and those who are great exercise authority over them yet it shall not be so among you but whoever desires to become great among you let him be your servant and whoever desires to be first among you let him be your slave just as the son of man did not come to be served but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Again, the cup that Jesus had to bear was his crucifixion. And when the disciples come asking to sit at his right hand, he asks them, are you able to drink the cup that I am about to drink? That is the cup. So think of that in relation to this cup of salvation that even the psalmist is talking about. And later when he's talking to the disciples, what's that involved? Service to each other. And he he mentions verse 28, just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. To even be willing to die to be able to save others. And again, Jesus was speaking to the disciples in Matthew 16 and verse 26. Four. So then Jesus said to his disciples, "If anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it." That's the difference between soul saving and salesmanship. You won't hear the ones that have something to sell say to deny yourself and take up your cross and follow me. The message is entirely different and the response has to be entirely different. Within this context, in Psalm 116, in verse 15, he says, Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. I believe that that death is that denying of self and taking up your cross and following in his footsteps. The psalmist then goes on to say in verse 17, I will offer to you the sacrifices of thanksgiving, and I will call upon the name of the Lord. The sacrifice of thanksgiving. What is that? I mean, again, let's go back to verse 12. What shall I render to the Lord for all his benefits towards me? The sacrifice of thanksgiving. Doesn't Paul write in Romans 12 and verse 1 that we're to be a living sacrifice? That we are to offer ourselves up as a sacrifice motivated by our gratitude and thanksgiving for what the Lord has done for us. In uh, Actually, earlier in the the psalm, several places in in the verse 2 says, Therefore I will call upon him as long as I live. In verse 4, then I called upon the name of the Lord. And then in the, this latter part of the psalm, in the end of ch- verse 13, again he says, and call upon the name of the Lord. The end of verse 17, and will call upon the name of the Lord. Well, what's it mean to call upon the name of the Lord? Well, in, in this context, it's the psalmist calling out to God to save him, to deliver him. In the New Testament, when Ananias was speaking to Saul of Tarsus, he says, And now, why are you waiting? Arise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on the name of the Lord. Realizing that God is the only one that can provide deliverance. Even in a, in a negative context, when, when Saul was still persecuting the church in Acts 9 and verse 14, and Ananias, again, God was sending Ananias to him, he says, And he is. He has authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. Uh, everybody that trusts in God, that trusts in Jesus, he's going to go out and at that time Saul was persecuting them. But they were the ones that would call out to the Lord. Again, think, think about it like little children. A little child gets hurt. What do they do? Mommy, mommy. They go run into mommy. Or they go run into daddy. Why? Because they know... They will help. They know they will fix whatever's wrong. In a simplistic terms, it's the same way with us and God. We have to have that childlike confidence that we call out to God. We call on him because he is the only one. In verse 14 and also in verse 18, excuse me, in Psalm 116, says, I will pay my vows To the Lord now in the presence of all his people. You ever think about, you know, when we become a Christian, aren't we essentially taking a vow to God that from this point on we're going to serve him? Again, deny self, take up your cross, and follow him. And within the psalm, isn't that what the psalmist is saying? I'm going to take up the cup of salvation. I will pay my vows to the Lord. I'm your bondservant. I'm going to offer up the sacrifice of thanksgiving. Those are promises I've made back to God because of what he's done for me. Out of thanksgiving and out of gratitude. Psalm 116 and verse 10 says, I believed, therefore I spoke. Is quoted in the New Testament in Second Corinthians. I want to read another fairly lengthy reading. First of all, 2 Corinthians chapter 2 and verse 14 starts off says, Now thanks be to God who always leads us in triumph in Christ, and through us diffuses the fragrance of his knowledge in every place. For we are to God the fragrance of Christ among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To the one we are the aroma of death leading to death, and to the other the aroma of life leading to life, and who is sufficient for these things? For we are not, as so many, peddling the word of God, but as of sincerity and as from God we speak in the sight of God in Christ. I want to skip down, if you will, to chapter 4, beginning in the first verse there. therefore, since we have this ministry, as we have received mercy, we do not lose heart, but we have renounced the hidden things of shame, not walking in the craftiness, nor handling the word of God deceitfully, but by manifestation of the truth, commending ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. But even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing, whose minds the God of this age has blinded. Who do not believe, lest the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God, should, should shine on them. For we do not preach ourselves, but Christ Jesus the Lord, and ourselves your bondservants for Jesus' sake. For it is God who commanded light to shine out of darkness, who has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. But we have this treasure in earthen vessels, that the excellence of the power may be of God and not of us. We are hard-pressed on every side, yet not crushed. We are perplexed, but not in despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Always carrying about in the body the dying of the Lord Jesus, that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our body. For we who live are always delivered to death for Jesus' sake, that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So then death is working in us, but life in you. Since we have the same spirit of faith, according to what is written, I believed and therefore I spoke. Those are the words quoted from Psalm 116, verse 10. He goes on to say, We also believe and therefore speak, knowing that he who raised up the Lord Jesus will also raise us up with Jesus and will present us with you. So when he says, I believed and therefore spoke in Psalm 116, it's in this context that he is in despair and God has delivered him. God has saved him from death. And then he he says that, I believed and therefore I spoke, I am greatly afflicted. Specifically verse 10 from uh, Psalm 116. So it's in this affliction that he's calling out to God and God has delivered him. And Paul quotes that right in the middle of this where he's talking about being persecuted and perplexed and in despair and all this stuff going on. And he says, I believe, therefore I spoke. We also believed and therefore speak knowing that he who raised up the Lord Jesus will also raise us up with Jesus and will present us with you. In that context, Paul is saying we can have faith in God. Yes, like the psalmist said in verse 11, in his haste, all men are liars. Paul is reminding the brethren there, God's faithful. God's going to keep his word to deliver us Just as he raised Jesus from the dead, he will raise us up. We can put our faith, our trust, and our confidence in him. So just as the psalmist knew that his soul had been delivered from death by the Lord, Paul knew that as well. Paul, and I like this about 2 Corinthians 4, because Paul says, Number one, we don't preach ourselves, but Christ Jesus, the Lord. And verse seven, that the excellence of the power may be of God and not of us. This isn't from us. This isn't because we've got this inner strength, this stick-to-itiveness. This isn't from us. This isn't just our our own grit and determination. This is because God enables us to do this. Because we can't do it without him. So Paul knew that it was God who enabled him to be transformed from Saul, the persecutor, to Paul, the bondservant of Christ. He knew what it meant to offer himself as a sacrifice of thanksgiving, as a living sacrifice. He knew what it meant to take up the cup of salvation, always carrying about in the body the dying of the Lord Jesus. He knew what it meant to deny himself and take up his cross and follow the Lord. That it was God's grace that enabled him to do what he did as he says in 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 10. That by the grace of God I am what I am. He knew what it meant to call upon the Lord. What it meant to pay his vows to the Lord in the presence of all his people. And that God had a purpose for him. Now, again, as as we started, we we mentioned all those people in, like Hebrews eleven, and the Psalm Psalmist. If David's the, the writer, the author of this Psalm, we're familiar with David. He's a prime character, or from the Old Testament. Paul. Without Paul, we wouldn't have the New Testament, but. These things did not apply just to David or just to Paul. They didn't apply just to Abel and Noah and Abraham and Moses. If, if we go back to, um, to Hebrews 11, beginning in verse 32, he goes on and says, What more shall I say for the time would fail me to tell of Gideon and Barak and Samson and Jephthah of David, of Samuel, and the prophets, who through faith-subdued kingdoms worked righteousness and obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions and quenched the violence of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, out of weakness were made strong, became valiant in battle, turned to flight the armies of aliens. Women received their dead raised to life again. Others were tortured, not accepting deliverance that they might obtain a better resurrection. Still others had trials of mockings and scourging, saying, yes, and of chains and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawn in two, were tempted, were slain with a sword. They wandered about in sheepskin and goatskin, being destitute, afflicted, and tormented, of whom the world was not worthy. They wandered in deserts and mountains and dens and in caves. And all these, having obtained the good testimony through faith, did not receive the promise, God having provided something better for us that they should not be made perfect apart from us. Think about all the ones in the Old Testament that we don't know their names that went through these things because of what God had done for them. And likewise, with with, with Paul, in the book of Acts, um, Acts 17 in verses 5 through 7, Paul is going and he's, he's been preaching in Thessalonica and there's this great uproar and everything. Verses 5 through 7, But the Jews who were not persuaded, becoming envious, took some of the evil men from the marketplace and, gathering them mob, set all the city in an uproar and attacked the house of Jason and sought to bring them out to the people. But when they did not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brethren to the rulers of the city, crying out, those who have turned the world upside down have come here too. Jason has harbored them, and these are all acting contrary to the decrees of Caesar, saying, there is another king, Jesus. So everywhere Paul went preaching, guess what? He wasn't the only one that got persecuted. He wasn't the only one that was drugged before the courts. He wasn't the only one that was ever beaten. There are who knows how many that that we don't know about. And I would ask you, we won't take time to read it, number one, because I probably couldn't pronounce all the names, but if you go to Romans 16, verses 1 through 15, Paul, writing to the Romans, he has this whole list of people that he wants the Roman brethren to remember, specifically because of their involvement in the work of the Lord. And how he says of some of them. They even risked their own life. For me. You know we see these things. I want you to think about. Even Paul himself. The change that took place. In him. In Acts 9. Again when the Lord goes to Ananias. And speaking to him. In Acts 9 verses 10 through 16. It says, And now there was a certain disciple at Damascus named Ananias, and to him the Lord said in a vision, Ananias, and he said, Here I am, Lord. So the Lord said to him, Arise and go to the street called Straight, and inquire at the house of Judas for one called Saul of Tarsus. For behold, he is praying, and in a vision he has seen a man named Ananias coming in and putting his hand on him so that he m- might receive his sight. how many things he must suffer for my name's sake. One, Ananias <laughs> knew about Saul. Ananias wasn't real <laughs> excited to be going to, he said, hey, wait a minute, you know, isn't this the guy that, you know, is rounding everybody up and beating them, throwing them in prison killing them? But God says he's a chosen vessel of mine. And I will show him how many things he must suffer for my name's sake. And we think about that, what, what he's going to ask Saul or tell Saul that he's going to have to do. Think about what the psalmist says, said in Psalm 116, verse 12. What shall I render to the Lord for everything he's done for me? And, and think about it again. Think about it in relation to our study. This, Today, in First John, true love casts out fear. And where do we see that true love? We only see, or we see it the greatest in what God has done for us. So God was able to take this devout Pharisee who's killing Christians and transform him into a servant, a bondservant, who's willing to die to bring salvation to others. But again, it wasn't just Saul. It just wasn't Paul. If we look through Acts, if we look through the New Testament, we see this among the Christians of that first century, what they were willing to suffer because of what God had done for them. And in fact, Paul tells Timothy In 2 Timothy 3.12, yes, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. Not mine, will suffer persecution. But again, we have to remind ourselves and we have to ask that question, what shall I render to the Lord for all that he's done for me? Another reason that I wanted to share these things with you today, yes, it's something I need, but also as we look at the world in which we live right now, we have had it pretty easy here in the United States. But there are brethren in other parts of the world who still suffer these things. They have their property seized. They lose their jobs if they declare the Lord to be their king, their ruler they're not permitted in some places to assemble like we are today because the government won't allow it but don't think that it can't happen here because we are in the midst of a transformation in our world this world is not the world that I was born into There are things that are going on in this world now. I don't care how you want to slice it, how you want to dice it, what you want to call it, politically, economically, socially, our children and our grandchildren will have to have this type of faith if they are to serve God. The circumstances that the early church faced were horrendous. If they truly spoke out, I mean, the passage that we read, they tried to to say that, hey, these these people turned the world upside down. They're telling everybody not to serve Caesar. They're telling them there's another king, because there is, and he's on his throne in heaven, and he's the one that died for us. And Washington, D.C. can't save us, or any other capital of the world, or any other government in the world. They can't do for us what the Lord's done for us. But this world is about to change even more than it has in my life. And we need to help each other to build up each other's faith so that we can be like Paul, so that we can have the faith in God so that even if we're in a Philippian jail, we can sing praises to God. And even if we never have to do that, we still take up the cup of salvation. We still offer up the sacrifice of thanksgiving. But that's the difference. Again, why I mentioned at the beginning of the lesson, are we going to be like those in Hebrews 3 and 4? Our only worried because we don't have enough to eat, we don't have enough to drink. It was better off in the Egypt. It's better off being a slave. Or are we going to be like those in Hebrews 11 if we are seeking the only one who can change us then and I don't have them all down some of you that have studied Hebrews more than I have they often refer to the let us passages in Hebrews let us exhort one another day by day and help build each other up in faith that we might be found faithful bond servants of our Lord Jesus Christ despite our circumstances by denying ourselves and taking up our cross and following Him. Let us be like Paul, when he wrote in Second Corinthians four thirteen, since we have the same spirit of faith, according to what is written, I believed and therefore I spoke. We also believe and therefore speak, knowing that he who raised up the Lord Jesus will also raise us up with Jesus and will present us with you. If you will, let's go to God and pray. Dear Lord God, our Heavenly Father, we come before you recognizing that you are the one who created us and placed us in this world to reflect your glory and your image and when, even when we failed to do that, you reached out and you lifted us up. You gave us hope in the midst of despair. You saved our souls from death through the blood of your son. You have continued to demonstrate your love and your care for us. And we pray that you would help us to reflect that love in this world, especially with each other, that we might be found faithful like those in, in Hebrews 11, that we might be found faithful like the Apostle Paul and his fellow servants. We realize that this world is not home. Our home, our hope is in heaven with you. And we know there's there's much that's wrong with this world. And we pray that you would help us not to be those who act out of fear, but those who act out of faith and love and gratitude for your mercy and your love and care, that you would give us the strength, the wisdom, to be able to share your word with those around us, with those we come in contact with, that they might truly see you living in us, that we might fulfill your purposes in this world in reconciling others to you as the only true and the only living God. And we thank you when we praise you through Jesus Christ, your son. Amen.